Hello and welcome back to the Quantum Podcast, people of the internet. My name is Ethan Morland and I'm the host of the podcast and I aim to speak to high performers about the hows and the whys behind what they do and break it down with them. On today's episode of the podcast, I have a very interesting guest on. His name is Graham Tuttle and he is also known as the Barefoot Sprinter Online. Today's episode went... It went very different to how I thought it would. I went into this podcast with a million and one questions for Graham about his methodologies, his training style, um, his thoughts on sh- on shoes, because obviously being the barefoot sprinter, everything's about um, using the feet and everything connects to the feet. And although we did speak about that, it wasn't just about that. There was many things that we sort of went off and it was more of a conversation um, talking about you know, talking about pain, we spoke about um, the use of orthotics and why they can be a life sentence for certain people when you don't have a regression out of them. Um, all these different things that we spoke about and he's, he's just a very insightful person and you can see why he's been as successful as he has because this is literally his passion, this is his everything. And it really shows in the way he speaks, the way he um, his knowledge that he puts across. And, you know, I can't thank Graham enough for his time because this this episode is going to be a two-part like the Ben Pearson episode because um, I just think in terms of the knowledge that there is, I just think it's better to split into two different parts. So, so as I said, we spoke about um, the use of orthotics and why they can be a life sentence. We spoke about... Um, his training style, how he sort of became a coach, why he became a coach, why this specific training style, why certain aspects of his training style are lost when it gets to athletic performance. You know, there's all these different things that we speak about that, um, especially for me as a coach and probably some people who just enjoy training, this is a really insightful episode. There's a lot, there's a lot of key things you can take in terms of, you know, the, the gym isn't just squat, bench, deadlift. The gym is exploring movement. It's exploring motion. It's how can you sprint? How can you incorporate jumps? These, um, you know, these simple movements that we, for some reason these days, lose because we have all this equipment available in the gym. And, yeah, Graham's fantastic. So I hope you enjoy this episode with him. Make sure to like, subscribe, share the podcast with anyone who may enjoy it. And, yeah, give it a like and let me know your thoughts in the comments. So enjoy the episode. So in the context of this podcast, what uh, what, what do you find, like, what is your endeavor? What's what's meaningful for you to create this podcast? And, you know, what do you, what do you think is meaningful to have me on the, as a guest, so to speak? So. so for me, I wanted to start a podcast because I'm really interested in high performance. So podcast has been like my main source of content so to speak for years like i'll listen to hours on hours of podcasts a week and i'm just really interested in not just listening to conversations with other people but actually having the conversation myself like for me being from you know working in strength and conditioning and you know elite sport doing what i'm doing now it's very interesting to speak to individuals who are high perform high performers or experts in their field which is also obviously a version of high performance itself Mm -hmm. so and to have you on as a guest i was i've been fascinated by the stuff you do in terms of the methodologies to your training is very different and also the you were one of the main people who got me into the idea of shoes are shit basically (laughs) like the shoes that we wear are not made for our feet and you know then i adopted obviously like wearing barefoot shoes and transitioning into that and just I had a lot more consideration for what I was putting on my feet so I wanted to speak to you about that and then also from like a coach to a coach speak about your training methodologies and how you go about coaching and things like that all right that's awesome yeah cool so you're ready to get going well we already have got going so absolutely yeah whatever yeah so you're known as the barefoot sprinter and that's that's how I recognized you online and I just obviously you've come to this level of athletic ability this knowledge base so I just wanted to understand where your athletic journey began as when you were younger so I, I think the the safest inroad to that is is um 
it, my athletic journey began because I was very unathletic. And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's, this is something quite like internal psychology that I think I spend a lot of time considering these days that isn't always evident. And so what it almost seems to be across the board is anybody that demonstrates some level of proficiency on social media uh, generally has the internal experience of being the opposite. Now, I think athletics is a little bit different uh, because there's certain just physical innate capacities that people just like they just can do something that seems to be natural to them like they're just strong or they, they just have a connection with their body that seems to be natural and but there's some quality of social media that i think lends itself to valuing people who can communicate their internal experience well and so there's something about whether that's you know people that write people that can create content people that can educate that coach there's something about that and i think that takes an understanding of the both sides of the equation in the sense like I was this thing and I lived the experience of being this thing. And now I am at least uh, externally on this other side of having done this thing. And so what I think most people use social media for is some form of this kind of like voyeuristic looking into someone else's life to kind of see what it is. And so to the extent that I can describe what it's like to go through this process of trying to be more athletic. And you could see this with business coaches. And so it's almost like people that are coaches are almost describing what it was like to develop this thing. So for example, Alex Famosi, I think does a really good job of describing what it's like to build a business. Look at Andrew Huberman describes what it's like to understand the human body. It's like, there's these fascinations that take people like as a passion, as an obsession and that continues to like hold with them through life. So for me, I grew up at horrible eyesight, a very poor eyesight, uh, I think my parents noticed me sitting away from a very large TV screen about two feet away trying to watch it when I was about two. And, you know, it is interesting because I think the quick uh, assumption at the time was you got to put me in glasses, I have astigmatism, you know, these corrective things. And so in a sense, they kind of correct the problem for you. And, you know, this is something that I'll have to do more uh, research on, you know, as I as I come full circle looking towards to have kids at some point in the future. But, you know, the idea of like we have a problem, let's go and correct it. And so that kind of you'll see that that idea feeds back through this uh, this pushback I have and it kind of forms the identity of a barefoot sprinter. But, you know, growing up, the, the tangible experience of growing up was like I didn't have good eyesight. So, like, I couldn't really see much until so when you were in glasses. You can kind of take your hands and put them beside your head and you can block your peripheral vision because you get used to two things. One, everything is amplified. So I have, you know, I've yet to meet someone who's not legally blind that has worse eyesight than me. And so everything being farsighted, everything got amplified. So it was bigger. So everything looked bigger than it was. And there's a loss of this use of depth perception. So when I get used to transit, I can see through this plane that is in front of me and not to the side. You don't. Uh, you, you don't appreciate that you lose things like your depth perception, your ability to navigate in like a three-dimensional uh, context. So like when things got dark at night or when things started moving fast and there's a lot of motion, like I couldn't really keep up with stuff. And so, you know, that that was like my experience growing up. So I wore rec specs. Uh, there's like these big goggles, the plastic goggles with lenses that you wrap around your head. And when I played football, I tried to play football when I was like third, fourth grade. Um you have these like wraparound lenses because you can't wear goggles when you're wearing a helmet. So like all these things that informed my athletic experience. And the problem was that I did not like sitting still and I still don't, I, I don't like this idea of stillness. And so part of my expression, my psychology, my inner being feels at peace when I'm moving. So, you know, this the, didn't lend itself well to go into school, so sitting down, like being in school, being in class, being told this is what you got to learn. And so, I kind of was at odds with the teachers. I always wanted to move and every teacher did not like me, but you know, I excelled because I was intelligent enough to kind of like piece things together, but I did not, I was not a fun experience in class. I was always asking questions, always trying to like create some type of motion and movement. And so you see that just this like internal development where like, I don't have a lot of physical capacity to be athletic, but I desperately want to move. And so this, that, this, this conflict, I think that conflict creates maybe the narrative for some level of like obsessive growth and development. So, you know, I go through this, High school, the only sport I really played was uh, track and cross country in middle and high school. And so, like, you know, by track and cross country, I mean, like, I'm on the two-mile and the 5K thing. I'm running slow. I'm not fast. I don't really know what I'm doing. No one teaches you how to run. You just wear, you buy the new pair of shoes. And you just kind of progress through this thing. And then you get to college. The only place I really felt like I was at home was in the gym where I was training. And, you know, I started working at the gym. And ultimately, I kind of, like, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I kind of settled on physical therapy, did a bunch of 
shadowing. And that was my first experience getting into like the insurance-based process of the whole thing where like a big insurance company tells you what to do. So ultimately it's like this, this tension. It's like, I want to go and train. I want to work out. I want to do this stuff, but I don't know how to do it. So all I'm really doing is training like a bodybuilder or doing powerlifting. It's kind of, you know, very meathead pursuits. Just, I didn't realize I was looking at bodybuilding.com and T Nation, some of these online forums, watching YouTube videos, listening to podcasts, you know, trying to figure things out as I go. And then I meet a few influential individuals who kind of show me some of this stuff. I'm like, all right, this is how you run. So you sprint like, this is really cool. And my first job out of college, basically, you know, I went and got a university degree just to be a glorified personal trainer. But I um, worked in this place. It was a it, it coaches, coaches, athletes. It was a D1 sports training, which is a franchise now. It was just a, it's a big brand, a lot of gyms around the United States. And they worked with athletes. And I remember, you know, I, I all of a sudden am thrust in this position. And I fell in love. I knew it was exactly what I wanted to be. But I, I show up and do my first class and some kid comes up. All right, coach, what are you doing today? I was like, coach, like you're probably more athletic than me. I'm talking to like seven year old. And so, you know, I kind of go to this process. It's like, okay, I started taking the classes with the, the, the guy who owned the, the facility and I'm learning and I'm, I'm growing. It was, it was great. And so like, I kind of go on this journey of like, okay, well, I, I realized that like what I desperately wanted to be my whole life was this athletic capacity. I wanted to be this professional athlete that just looked cool, felt cool, was confident in their body. that just wasn't afraid of stuff. Like I'd always see these, these athletes that just look so confident. They felt so like, you know, assured. They looked like, oh, I could balance on one foot. I can jump and do these things. I was like, they they felt in place in their body. And it just, well, that's what it looked like on the outside. And so that kind of became this model of desires. Like, I want to feel like I think they feel. And so, you know, I just started to work on, all right, well, this is how you run. This is how you jump. This is how you, you do all the stuff. And I, I didn't know how to walk well. Like I had, had a series of injuries, uh, ankle sprain, patellar tendonitis, all, all kinds of things, like everything you can really go through like from a you know, non-life-threatening injury. I had a certain variation of that. So shoulder dislocations, back, you know, SI joint problems, all kinds of things. And so that kind of paired this like, all right, I want to do this thing, but every time I try to do this thing, my body starts falling apart and the training I'm doing isn't fixing it. So it led me to this tension of like, well, let me take this background of all this anatomy and physiology I learned in college because I had to take a bunch of different classes because I kept trying to go through different careers and none of them, the pre none of the prereqs actually overlapped. So I took like seven or eight anatomy and physiology classes each. So I got a very good paradigm for the body. And then I kind of took that, sort of apply these things and like, okay, well, what's going on? And that, that led to this process of like, I personally am striving towards this thing that is kind of pushing right at the edge of performance, meaning like I'm running as fast as I can, jumping as high as I can, even though those are not objectively fast or high, I'm getting a little bit better at it. And I'm having to temper this thing. I'm like, okay, I have to like back in this thing. So like, I didn't get the normal exposure to all this athleticism as a kid would, and maybe ancestrally we would have. Um, and so you just see this, you see this progression where now it's like, years i'm going i'm almost 30 and so you know a lifelong obsession with trying to be more athletic navigating the realities of having to back in this thing that didn't necessarily become come naturally to me and then communicate it along the way and here you are so that, that kind of suited me well for this spot of life yeah the this i'm on a sort of similar similar journey as to what you were describing there where you feel like you've fallen apart when you, with mm -hmm. everything you try so like I'm now at a point so because I've had this I've had a knee issue for a year, and I'm now at a point where I'm like backing everything off, and just restarting mm -hmm. again. Which sometimes it's very hard to do, you know when like you've spent years like probably when you're in your bodybuilding phase you've spent years building these like strong found strong foundations in your squat, deadlifts, bench, whatever it may be. And to then have to go, I actually have to strip everything back to the mm -hmm. basics. It's very hard for the ego. It's very hard to do, but it's very good for the ego to do it. Uh, so yeah, mm -hmm. I'm, at, I'm at a similar point where I'm, you know, now it's like, can I just hold an ISO split squat rather than loading a bar and trying to do 10 reps? What have you? So it's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's very hard to do. So was it hard for yourself to bring it back? and sort of strip the ego, strip everything back and start again? Uh, I mean, I, in some senses, no, but it's not because of the, it's not because I've got this like humble, altruistic, like omnipotent perspective on life. It's like, I just kept driving myself to the point where I didn't have another option. And so like, you see, there's this pattern in life, like the same thing with change, making changes to diet. Like I've had a pretty significant diet, dietary changes in my life. 
And at this point, I don't really eat out that much. Um, or at least, you know, it used to be before, like I would eat healthy and then eat clean and have a cheat meal. And then eventually it's just like the cheat meals become so like you get bloating, your body's upset. It's just, you're just so unhappy that it's like, I just don't even enjoy the, the pleasure to begin with. And so the same thing with like training or if you're trying to run or you're trying to like squat and all of a sudden it's like this thing just hurts you to the point you can't do it anymore. And so, you know, in some senses I'll say I, maybe because I'm not very tough. I, I have a higher, I have a lower pain threshold than other people. Like I, for David Goggins or some of the people I know, like Mark Bell, like they'll just, they'll just run and they just, they just keep going. And like they, they, their pain thing, their, it's like their pain sense is a little bit off, but they're like, I'm like, that would hurt me if you did that. And you, they just keep going. But I, I kind of get the point. I was like, all right, this is just not like, I can do the thing. And it's the ego. Like you said, the identity of like, well, I'm strong. So I should be able to do this. I should be able to squat or deadlift do other stuff but it's causing me pain. So now I'm like kind of doing the thing, but I can't even do the thing because it's, you know, too uncomfortable. And so, you know, I think there's a, a reality where it's like pain is your first teacher. It's your first coach. It's the thing that informs it. Pain is the sensation. It's all it does is grab your attention and say, Hey, I know you thought you were going to look at this, but we're going to pay attention to this. And it just grabs you and like reorients to say, this is the most important thing in your life. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, they they pick up to the signpost and they get stuck there. And so this is, you know, you really like, this is kind of what I've been working on more and more because as I work with more clients and more the people, you realize that like pain isn't this simple thing of like, oh, my tissues are damaged. It's a really emotional and psychological experience because pain is, it's broad, it's unquantifiable, it's, it's, uh, it's individual, it's ubiquitous. Everybody knows what it is to be in pain, but few people, like you can't really point to it. Like, so what ends up being is that the quicker you're able to attend to pain, the less damage you do to yourself and the more adeptly you're able to make changes and adjust. And so, you know, the hard part is that, so everyone has a first encounter with pain. And I think that really informs how your life is going to go in a sense, because you bump into pain and you, you know, we, we, we develop this idea like pain is bad. It hurts. My knees hurt, for example, in your case, it's like, okay, right. So, what do you do with that? And so some people, you know, when they get to this point, they they get scared because, you know, maybe they have a, a scarcity mindset. They think pain is bad. So they just like they shut down. They stop doing anything. They turn around like, all right, well, I'm not going to work out anymore. And so, you know, and that's where you see people. They go, well, I used to work out, but my knees got really bad. So I stopped. And it's like, and then I sort of gained weight. And it's if like, you, so you start to see this. It's like, And it's not always that every sensation, but it's like there's a sensation that is ours to have worked through. And I think people get stuck there. And so some people make an identity around that. They, they, they define themselves by the pain, by their diagnosis. And so let's say you go to a doctor and they say, you've got patellotendinitis or Osgood slaughter, you know, you name it. And they go, well, you know, I would love to go do this, but I got patellotendinitis, so I can't. It's like, they kind of like, and they, they make their whole idea. Like I, they are best friends with their physio. They start to ice every night. They just manage this thing. That's a symptom treatment. And then there's some people who are able to step back and say, you know, this pain just doesn't seem right in a sense. It's like, it, it, I, I understand. I don't need to judge this, but it, it doesn't seem right. So maybe there's another path. And so those are the people that realize it's, the process is not numbing and avoiding. The process is not turning around and going home. The process is of like listening to your pain and for the listen is trying to teach you. And I think for that, there is an opportunity for us to start to circumnavigate this 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 roadblock in a way that it informs us on a direction. You know, we realize in hindsight the pain was us trying to walk into a wall without realizing that the door frame is about three feet to the right. And so, what you get from that is, I think, a calibration. I think this is really the process where it lets you calibrate and figure out where am I going with my life. Because if you look at it in perspective. Let's just say you're squatting. Okay, so let's say you're super strong. You could squat 500 pounds. Great. You know, that's still small compared to 2,000 pounds. And you still couldn't squat, you know, one of the rocks of the pyramid. You know, there's like, there's this like, we we judge ourselves based off of like our comparison to other people. Like, I'm strong. Well, relative to what? Could you pick up a house? No. So how strong are you? You know, it's like we kind of like, we go, I 315. I had a 10 pound PR. So, or I guess in your terms, be, you know, 120 now or 140 it's like i had a five kilo pr it's like in the scheme of what or it's like i think we go it's like it is really important because we are material creatures meaning we have flesh and bone and we have the skin that holds everything together in a sense but there's also this like magical for lack of a better word magical component that does like 
create the experience of what it means to be a human. And I think we get stuck in the, like they call it the secular or the material world thinking, Oh, I need to go and get 10 pounds stronger. Well, I'll be happier when I do this, when I'm fast, when I jump, when I make the team, when I like, when I do this stuff. And so that's to make more money by the car. Like it, it, it all falls in this thing. And so I think at some point, Pain allow, pain invites us to recalibrate our intentions with what really matters. And I think that's where you go to self-development and you start to see, all right, your body hurts. And this is where you can look at a, a true allegory of the body. It's like, okay, your knees hurt because you've been training in one style of movement for like as the majority of what you do, meaning you're not incorporating a breadth of understanding, meaning you're not looking what the human body is capable of. And you're not looking at the stresses you're putting yourself into. That leads you down the road of like, well, why do I do that? Because I want to be strong. Because I want to be big. Because my heroes look like this. And so you could, you have to question your models of desire. Why you do the things you do. Why you don't listen to your body. Why you push through the different things. And so, you know, when looked at correctly, the pain becomes the first coach. And so that invites you on this process. But it is often not until people hit rock bottom in a sense that they get to that point. And then, even then, it's not guaranteed that they make a decision and moves in a proper orientations there's a lot there but hopefully that makes sense yeah it does um what i want to say on that is that so this idea of you know everything what you were basically saying is everything is relative and Mm -hmm. it's kind of like you know when we measure like vo2 max it's all well and good saying oh my absolute vo2 max is 65 that means i'm elite and it's like yeah but you're like twice the size of everyone else so it's not like when you put it as a relative term actually you not you're probably average compared to everyone else so it's kind of like it's all well and good being able to squat 500 pounds but when you're you know going up and down stairs and you're in pain Mm -hmm. what's the point in that 500 pound squat which that's my realization in the past couple of months is like it doesn't matter what i can lift and whether i can lift it in a month or two months it's can you just can I just go up and down the stairs without the pain? Yeah, and it's making that progression forward. So the hard part about that is that's so most people, everyone goes through that experience, right? And so this is kind of this colloquial wisdom of like, just wait till you're forty, just wait till you hear people say like, oh, you're you know, it's like the, it's it's this like acceptance of this mediocrity of like. Well, at some point, all you care about is your health. And like, there is a truism. In there. there is a truth that at some point, you don't want to sacrifice the greater, you don't lose the battle to win. You don't lose the war to win the battle in a sense. It's what they're getting at. But most people have this house inside this kind of like fixed mindset of, well, you know, I'm just getting older it is what it is. And so the, it, it's a company with your justification for losing the wonder that otherwise inspires them to do with their life to be. And, and I think that's that's a sad piece. And the other side is that like there's this it really is the first crisis for most people because in a sense the let's just say that we could break down like two different types of pain there's like the overuse pain and then there's the acute pain meaning there's the like the acute pain is i try to do something that i am obviously not in alignment with meaning i go and it's a great example. There's this guy who was coaching of these um, hockey kids years ago and their parents, this clinic. And it was like the end of the night, nine o'clock. And I had to done this whole summer program. And the last week we were doing net t- t- testing on max deadlifts. And so one of the kids had lived 300 pounds and his dad walks out. And so by this point, like we were trying to in a hurry. So I left the weights on the floor, went out to go to the field and do some running. And I look back and one of the coaches like, Oh, someone to hurt himself. I'm like, well, what happened? Apparently, one of the dads walked out and said, well, my son picked this up. And he, I'm talking, this guy's obese. He's not in shape. He's wearing flip-flops and in cargo shorts. And he picks it up. He's like, oh. And so he, he's like, take a video of this. He goes, and on the video, which I think is a saving grace that he got videoed because it's like, I didn't coerce him to do it. He goes, just 300 pounds and I'm going to pick it up. you know. And so he picks it up, back, goes out immediately. He's on the ground. They call an ambulance. He can't, like, it, it, he survived, obviously. It wasn't like a... a, a he didn't get paralyzed, but you know, it was one of those examples. That was an acute injury because he just tried to do something that he had. He was not in line. There's no you know, alignment, meaning like he was not in physical preparation for the thing he attempted to do. That's where you get this kind of like things snap, break, whatever. And since you get hit by a car, you're not in alignment for the the impact of that thing. Then there's this overuse type of injury, which is like 
all right, you've been doing this thing, but you kind of are missing the signs. It's kind of like a little tone deaf. It's like, okay, I've been playing this sport, doing this thing for so long that I've like kind of gotten fixed, meaning I'm not changing with the times. It doesn't mean you have to give up your sport, but you're not paying attention to the changing inputs in your life. That could be, you know, and it's not always that our physical bodies change as much as like the responsibilities we go. Let's just say you get an aging athlete. Well, what changes? It's not so much that they get older, although that's part of it. It's like, well, you know, they're, let's just say they, they don't feel as their, the level, their level on the team is not the same. So they're drinking more, they're doing, they're, they're doing a bunch of stuff that's not helping them or they have kids or they have a partner or they have any number of things that are changing the inputs that are going. And so not adjusting to these things, meaning with any new responsibility in your life, you now have to adjust what it is that you, your, your priorities. And so I can't take the, you know, it's, it's the idea of like being alert and aware. And I can't just uh, overuse training is like I'm under recovering more often than not. And so this this kind of chronic pain that pops up and it's like, well, you know, it's like you, you look at people that are suffering from this thing and you're kind of like, well, your body is falling apart because you're not paying attention to the demands of it. And you're trying to like, and there's almost an ego or thing underneath that, which is like, there's something that's pushing them to ignore the sensation in the body. And I'm not saying that this is perfect flow where we never get hurt, but you know, it's kind of like, um, maybe one of those is like, you know, touching an electric wire and the other is like not picking up the fact that the water's got too hot and then you burn yourself. Like you boil a frog in a sense. And so uh, I don't quite have that on pattern now, but I think that's where you start to notice is like pain really is this thing. And if people aren't careful, that really, if they don't have wise counsel, they can let that really just, you know, tackle them in a sense. The, I like what you said on the acute, the acute side of things. Like if you're not, if your body isn't physically prepared to be there, it's gonna, it's gonna get injured. Something's gonna go. Like the guy obviously his back went. And I spoke to a coach over here in Australia, Vic Hawksley. I'm not sure if you're aware of him. So he's quite big in the sort of strength through range. The idea of play in, in, is important in training, and you know to carry it on through adult life. And what we were talking about is that there's this transition into now in the recent couple of years of this idea of strength through length. And yeah, athletes are still, well, not just athletes, athletes and coaches are still very wary to incorporate it. Even though, for example, in a, you know, like in American football, when some of the, some of the time when they're throwing the ball, they're short, like, the range that their shoulders going into is, you know, ex- is quite extreme, but yet they won't train through this extra length that they'll be getting into, which may then, you know, lead to injury. But then still, they won't go into that length. And I think it's something that's becoming really important for people is to build this strength through length, but obviously not too quickly because that is yeah. Where the so will one of the things I think you nailed right there, which is interesting. This idea of play, and I think that's why you sh- you so rarely see kids get hurt, is because they're always playing. And I think, in a sense, play involves novelty of movement. And so you see someone that becomes a professional athlete, or like a college or high school high level athlete, it's like they stop playing. And I think when you stop playing, it's when you get hurt because your body is like trying to go through this thing. And so, in a sense, you know, what do you need to do? And so this is where I think you know the idea of like okay, strength through length is valuable because what that's really saying is you need to be able to move through this range of motion. And, you know, in some senses, when you're playing and you have a novel stimulus, um, you just cover that naturally, I guess, in a sense. You go to a gym, for a, like a playground, for example, where there's uh, monkey bars, you're swinging, you're rotating, you're falling, you're going down the slide, you're rolling on the ground. Uh, for most people, something like jujitsu, which is something I've been interested in recently, is a great example of that as well. But you look at rugby, you know, Australian rules football, you just like all kinds of sports where there's just a lot of novelty and that stops really becoming a meaningful stimulus when you start to specialize. And so by that point of like, Oh, I'm a goalie in soccer or I'm a quarterback in football. I'm a, you know, a forward. It's like, you start to go through these different pieces and you realize, okay, well, what have we lost? Well, we've lost the actual play. And so, you know, how do we do this? So the question then becomes like, if you look at the entire strength and conditioning profession, it's how do we start to train the body in a way that we can maintain the obligations of 
the responsibility, I mean, the obligations of your specific role while then adding in some type of like stimulus around the board. And that's where it's interesting because then you start like, well, what should the gym be? It's like, okay, well, we, we kind of get focused. Yeah, I need to get strong. I need to go do these main lifts. And so that's part of it. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I, I obviously, I think if you get stronger squat and deadlift, like you develop overall strength relative to your body weight, that's valuable, especially for lower body. I think you need a lot of that. But I do think we've lost a good bit of this, uh, like what the, what the movement could be. For example, the, the Greeks, the um, I think one of the earliest uh, examples of like recorded structured exercise and, and training, they used sprinting and jumping as a form of strength training. Like if you go and you look at a max effort sprint or doing broad jumps, they would hold little weights in their hands and, and do repetitive broad jumps or the jump into the sand. That's really challenging. And I think that's one of those pieces when you when you stop thinking of that as like, okay, I got my leg day. What was your leg day? Well, squat, deadlift, leg extension. It's like, all right, well, what would it look like to put some sprints into that? That's scary because, like, oh, well, I do that in my sport. Like, do you really practice full-out sprinting? Do you do speed work? Do you do deceleration, agility, plyometrics? It's like, well, no. So I think that's one piece, which is like that in itself covers a lot, a lot of motion. And it's actually very specific to the athletic skills you want in the field. And the other part is like, when you go into the gym, so hence why I, I kind of have not been doing this. And I do, I do think that this is a perspective that's been afforded by the years I spent doing the very boring strength uh, work, squat, bench, deadlift. So I think there's definitely a, a point of that in a gym. Like it's not saying they're mutually exclusive. But I do think this idea of length is valuable because then you can start to take things like bands, uh, cable machines, different attachments, and start to pull your body in these things. So, for example, the shoulder, it's like, are you going to throw a football over and over again, or are we just going to start to attach a cable or band and allow the arm to pull back and lengthen through that upper torso in these positions? So getting into these long positions under load with consequence, because when you just do stretching and you just do like, all right, I'm going to stretch and hold this position and breathe, rarely is a consequence. And without consequence, the body doesn't make adjustments to the, the stimulus, if that makes sense. Yeah. Every, I feel like in sport, the idea of training has become too linear, so to speak, in terms of, like, yes, there's the, you know, we can do change of direction, we can do these, like, you know, these different things which aren't necessarily linear in fashion, but the idea that that's all we do. Like, there's no, you know, it's the same mobility routine week on week, it's the same lifts week on week, there's no... There's no alterations in like, well, today, you know, like I might work a bit more on like my thoracic mobility, for example. There's just like, for me, it feels like when I was working in rugby, this, it was just too like every day before a, a pitch session, they just get the hurdles out. The lads would do this really unintentional mobility that they don't really care about doing, you know, and on the sprinting, what you, as you just said, like, are you really sprinting? We'd be, you know, programming max sprints because obviously for a worst case scenario, you need to have done it at some point in a controlled environment. And they're like, oh, well, so they'll do maybe mm -hmm. 60, 70% of a sprint. And they're just, there's not, for me, there's not enough intention, especially at that higher level. I feel like they just stop, some, mm -hmm. some of them stop caring. As enough to be able to yeah and that's where i think you go career. back to this idea of pain that's like the overuse thing it's like it's kind of become a thing where like you're because and then the overuse I, it's almost always the case of some type of acute when you look at like pro athletes there's some type of acute injury is preceded by some type of like this ache chronic stiffness tightness like where you could consider an overuse pain and the overuse pain is just like you're not something is changing so like there are fixed and this is this is the, the part of let's call it the rub between let's say a fixed identity a fixed social expectation meaning like I have made a bill a building for example stands and there's right angles and there's structures and foundations so the building has a purpose and you can't really change that but then you know that it kind of stands in stark contrast to let's just say the people who would flow in and out of that building in a sense so like you may build a building with an idea and said, this is what it's going to be. But rarely, that's why I did the idea of open concept teams seems to be taken over more because you have like, oh, we have all these rooms, these partitions, but 
well, the wall becomes an impediment. And so like the, the idea of a warehouse is interesting, but you do look at like people are this seasons nature. I think people are an interesting combination of nature and structure in a sense. There's the logos, there's this idea of like, you know, intertwined knowledge and the ability to structure and order things with this also chaotic image of nature that is constantly changing and moving in this file of fittest. And there's this interaction of these two, uh, let's say opposing forces that kind of like yin and yang, so to speak. And I think that's where you look at it and say, okay, well, I've got this fixed contract, meaning I am a player, I'm a professional athlete for three more years. So I have to keep showing up and do this stuff. And it's like, within that, okay, there are responsibilities that you need to set aside this and go through this stuff and realize that I've given this but it's also when you start to look at the pain is saying, what part of this, where is your, what, what's distracting you? What is taking your attention? What is pulling traction, pulling you off of traction for the thing you said you wanted to do? Which that to me seems a much more interesting test of the longevity of an athlete than it is the physical body. Because it just seems to me we have this narrative that if we find the exact right training modality, the exact right strength to, to weight ratio, the exact right like movement and speed. And, we, you know, we want to geek out and think we could solve with more structure. It does seem to me interesting because, you know, I was talking to my girlfriend about this the other day. She She's a gymnastics coach and she was, uh, there's an adult class that she'll oversee on, on occasion. And there's the people doing tricking and tricking is just kind of like, interesting phenomena where people go out into an open space and like jump and do backflips and they kick the feet around all kinds of weird stuff. And she made the comments. Like, she's like, I don't know how these people just don't get injured. They're laying at all kinds of weird angles. Their knees are going in, their ankles are going in. And it's almost as though like their bodies are prepared to not get injured because their intention is set on going to try. And I'm sure people have gotten injured for sure, but it's like, you then you go look at something like a very, you know, what would see a harmless, I'm, I'm making a cut and I'm adjusting, but I'm playing a sport and like an ACL tear. You all have me non-contact ACL injuries versus people that are flipping around and they're, you know, it's just interesting to look at the psychology behind this stuff and then saying like, am I playing and am I having fun? Do I feel safe or, or like capable? Am I in alignment with the thing my body wants to do? Or is there more of a, I'm pushing myself to do something and and ignoring the little things that are popping up. It, it's just, that strikes me as meaningful. And that at this point in my life and uh, coaching, I, I tend to find more and more meaning in pursuing those questions. Again, I don't know where it leads, but it is interesting to look at those things of like, you know, for example, in your situation, let's just say your knees are hurting. There is an interesting reliance on i'm going to go back to try and solve the same problem with the same set of tools that caused the problem you know say okay well i'm going to go i can't squat anymore so i'm going to do a split squat and i don't get me wrong i was there i had this horrible patellar tendonitis for over a year a year and a half and it got i started when i was doing the squat every day but i had no form you know i wasn't doing the long range stuff this length i wasn't really doing any mobility work i didn't have good form didn't have good core bracing and so it's kind of overloaded one portion of the body it's just kept getting worse and worse. And so it was squat seven days and it was squat five days and it was squat four days and three days and two days and one days. And it was like, I always, I kept trying to fix it through the same means that hurt it. And it, there's value in that, but also a question to be asked of, well, potentially there's something to be learned from stepping back and exploring because you'll fix it through movement, right? So the hard part is like within the house of movement, that is how you find a resolution. But the idea of loading and putting yourself in the same context, that seems to be a uh, an interesting question I don't think many people ask themselves because they don't want to let go of the ego with identity. Yeah. I if, I um it's quite so what you're saying about the knee, obviously and you'll always fix it through exercise. So yesterday I went to see a knee specialist and you'll laugh at this. So I was in there for all of 15 minutes. He manipulated my knee about two or three times and said, I was like, right, so what should I do? And he goes, take six months off. I was like, six months off what? He was like, everything. I was like, you're telling the wrong person this. I was like, that's like, it's lucky I have the background I do because I, I went away and then I thought about it. And I sent this email, like, you know, I was quite unsettled by the fact that, a specialist has told me this, given me this really bad advice. And so he invited me back and I had a discussion with him. I was like, look, I understand you've got your credentials, uh, you've done your education, this, that, the other, but that's some of the worst advice I've ever been given in my life. Like I can't, 
I can't grasp how you've not taken the specific context of like, I have a very active lifestyle. I, you know, exercise is everything for me. It's not just the physical thing, it's the mental thing of exercise. And I was like, you're telling that person to just take six minutes and off. hope everything. it works. That's the thing. Exactly. Exactly. I was like, there's no, with that, there's no return return to play protocol almost where like, you know, usually after after an injury, there's always this protocol you put in place where you're like, right, so I can get back to 100%, I will try 20, I'll try 30, I'll try 40 and so on. And you're just going, take six months off and go right back to it. I was like, and I just paid $180 for that. I was like, so this is just baffling. So it's also, I think, especially when you're not just at the professional level, but when you bring it down to the, you know, the general population, someone's then getting that advice and they don't know, they're actually going to go and do it. And then they're going to come back, get injured, and the same cycle is going to go over and over and they'll just give up. They just won't exercise. And obviously that yeah. leads to then other it's, issues. So this is where I think, you know, it's ironic. I, I got hit with some level of inspiration yesterday to just, as I was training and moving is most of the training you'll see me do now is not necessarily training with an intent meaning i'm not trying to get stronger and bigger faster i'm trying to move better and like stack and get better patterns and i have some things but most of it's expiration because you know the i, I think the only thing that th there's a certain amount of paternalistic credentialism that is uh, epidemic in and let's say the insurance-led medical health provider professional marketplace it is just like oh i'm gonna do this and the hard part is that you can't find the answer for something you're not looking you for the with the question of meaning you can't like if you've stopped being interested and that's the hard part is that most people go into this stuff because they at some point like movement like people wanted to help do this stuff but they kind of got the degree and thought well that's it and in some sense the degree just signifies that you've done a bit of thinking about a subject but we kind of over rely on that instead of looking at, well, what is the, are you still doing the thing? Are you still pursuing? Are you trying to run? Are you trying to, are you trying to be an athlete? Because without that, you stop looking under places. Cause you, you can't, you, the question, you can't teach a man that which he thinks he already knows. You can't teach someone that they think they already know. And there's a bit of that where it's like, you'll walk in and someone, a doctor who are a, a specialist, even worse, it's just a person, like he's just a person. And so it's not that he doesn't have stresses or argues for arguments with his partner and needs money or whatever. It's like most of the, when you get to the point where most of the treatment that's on offer is just telling you to stop doing the thing, doing anything, you know, of course, like, oh, if you don't ski anymore, you won't hurt your knee again. It's like, but that's easy for you to say. And this is, you know, epidemic when you see like orthotics being advised, uh, restrictive shoes, Braces, pads, pills, shots, procedures, you know, in some of the stuff, there's some merit to it. But, you know, I think there's a, there's a loss of, let's say, wonder in people in a sense. And you, you probably just received in his younger days. I'm assuming he probably would have been much more interested to, like, go work with that stuff. But now he's got to see certain people, get insurance or whatever the, whatever the constraints are. But there's this narrative that's been said that uh, people just don't care. There's no compliance. People don't care anymore. They just, you know, like the best thing you could do is manage them like a parent, get them to take their pills and do something. It's like, he has absolutely no faith that you do anything. So therefore, because that's the perspective he sees things in, he stops even asking the question and trying. And it's tough because then you as the person can walk out of what you thought was just asking for advice or help from a professional with a diagnosis. And for anybody that walks out, oh, I've got patellar, you know, early onset arthritis, or I've got, you know, uh, osteopathy of the, I don't know, like you name of any of these fun Latin words and just go through the whole process. But it's like people walk out and they go, yeah, I got this thing and it sounds serious. And oh, the doctor said, I can't do anything for three months. It's like, that's your plan? Just do nothing? And that's hard because it makes people victims. It turns them into this thing. And movement's always the answer, but it's hard because like, you what you hope the hope in going to see a medical professional is that they're able to see the context that you're in with a bigger perspective and say all right these are the options these are the things we want to do but it's turned into well here are the external solutions that i can apply to you i can do this procedure i give you this pill i give you this product and that's it 
And none of those are empowering for you as an individual. And you would hope that they could say, all right, but the thing is you wouldn't go to a personal trainer and say, hey, I got knee pain because you've been taught that, well, this is a pain problem. This is for the specific specialist. You need to go to a knee specialist, a physical therapy, a chiro. And like, so, but then those people aren't engaging in the type of solution that could empower you to help heal yourself. And it's, it's a very difficult thing. And so you just see this, like this, this dichotomy that gets you as the individual consumer get pulled in the middle. And I understand that because I've been there. I live that. Like I understand what it's like and it sucks. Yeah, it's definitely a shit one. But you mentioned orthotics there as well. Like, so obviously insoles for shoes and what have you. So I want to transition on to this idea of barefoot. So A, what is the problem with orthotics in your opinion? And B, people who are wearing them, how can they transition out of them? So the reason I chose the, the, the name, the Barefoot Sprinter, I, it was suggested to me, but I, I really, it stuck with me was the idea that like, I'm not a huge barefoot runner, meaning I don't go out and like run all the time barefoot. There's a certain masochist, masochism that's uh, required for that, that I just, you know, like sometimes the ground is not what I want to run on, you know, barefoot. So like, I'm a fan of shoes, don't get me wrong. And I think the shoes are great technology that allow you to do a lot of stuff. I do think that sprinting is the highest form of athletic expression. And I think that being able to do a barefoot implies that there's a lot of stuff the body can do. And that's really powerful. So ultimately the story about orthotics and around feet is one of human potential versus human limitation. Obviously anyone can point to the fact that it hurts to step on a rock or that some things are safe. Like, okay, sure. I understand that. But there's an opportunity to look and say that this thing that we've been told not even told anymore. It's just it's so enculturated that your feet are weak, fragile, and you know unhealthy or and incapable that they need support. And so you look at this. It's like I think we're all, we're in the trillions of dollars. Uh, yeah, I think we're actually four billion. We're four billion dollars on orthotics worldwide, in a sense. And it's like that's a fraction of the, the overall shoe market. But it's like this is a massive market where people are spending tons and tons of money. In comparison, or in, in uh, like you have to understand this fact that people are spending an incredible amount of money on orthotics while the shoe technology, quote unquote, is getting better. So the idea of orthotics is based off the idea that your feet aren't strong. And some people are born flat feet. They're not capable. They're not strong. They don't have the ability to support themselves. And so you need a shoe or some type of exogenous support to be able to keep your feet from hurting. And the ironic part that we seem to all have forgotten is that we evolved and developed over millions of years without any type of shoe or foot support. So somehow in the last, you know, really since 1970, which the first uh, say foam sold shoe came out in 1972, you look at this and you think, okay, well, last 50 years, we've had a massive marketing. This told us that everyone needs to wear shoes all the time. So underlying that is like, okay, for people who have foot pain, almost always because their feet, let's say don't get stimulation anymore, then there's some type of bandage that they need to have that. So let's say they block the input. The hard part is that what you get is a broader sense of, and I think this is why the uh, conversation of pain is pertinent because you look and you say, in response to pain, what should we do? Now, should I step back and look at this broader circumstance to see what's weak and what I should address where I need to develop strength? And it really is strip the ego away and build up from a base foundation. Or do I just continue to put band-aids and numbing agents on top of it because i don't want to feel in the sensation for most of let's say the, the ideal opportunity would have been as kids growing up they're able to spend time barefoot walking and develop their feet if you look at kids their feet function like hands you can press in they can grip they have ability to use their toes and bend their feet are developing in this very sensorial uh, feedback mechanism and you see that the hands and the feet and the face have the highest sensory input the most nerve endings in the body they're very rich they would have been how we perceive the world. And so as part of that, you know, the first lesson of being told the world's unsafe is you can put shoes on because you might get hurt, you might step on something. And so it's a lesson that gets ingrained that the world isn't safe, you're not strong, you're not capable, you need something to protect you. And so you see this very deeply. And so people don't ask about orthotics unless they're in pain or they're afraid. And pain is pain and fear go really closely tied together. And so what you see is that there's a belief that my feet can't do it. And so the ironic thing is that your feet and your hands are pretty much mirrored in terms of their anatomy. So the feet have 27, 26 bones, hands are 27. They have the same number of digits, the articulation joints, and they've got a forearm, wrist, uh, finger setup that is just like the shin, ankle, foot. The same same thing, same buildup. 
One is just used to standing on them. And so when you're walking around, you're on hard and comfortable, painful surfaces, sure, wear shoes. But when that's your go-to, then what you end up losing is A, the ability to process sensory feedback from your feet, and B, the mechanical strength, so your grip strength. If I wanted to go and hang and do a dead hang or pick up something or grab a ball or, you know, like even carry groceries, I need some level of grip strength. And so it's ironic because grip strength is one of the uh, tests they use to see how people, how close people are to death. Not because it's a great test, and as some of your research has shown, just because it's convenient. Like, I can, hey, grip this, and then move on. And so, in the same sense, if someone had weak grip strength, you wouldn't put them into finger or hand cast or an oven mitt. You'd have them work on their grip, and we very much get that. But yet, somehow, because it's very profitable for the shoe companies and orthotic companies, medical device and all this stuff, that, that isn't there. And the incentive behind that isn't to try and hurt people. It's just... There is a belief that humans are weak and fragile and we can't do things. And so we are materialized limits. And so all that to be said is like, if you're wearing orthotics, the question is, what is the purpose of that orthotic? If it's to keep you out of pain, then you have to understand that that's like a crutch that you're assigned if you break a leg. It's a valuable thing while you are trying to heal the actual physical tissue and let the bone like join back together. But if I saw you in a crutch and you said, oh, I broke my leg five years ago, it's like, you would assume something really bad happened. So the point is that a, a short-term acute use of an orthotic can be appropriate in some settings when you're recovering from severe pain, but the vast majority of it is just a symptom treatment. So an orthotic is simply not a long-term solution. It is just something that is a short momentary thing to get you out of pain. And that the problem is, even though it does get you out of pain, it comes at a longer-term expense as you continue to weaken your foot, the tissues get less movement and you become stiff. If you've ever had a, a wrist uh, problem or you've been in a, a, a brace at any point after any joint in your body, you notice how quickly you lose strength, you lose muscle mass, and you lose the movement that would hydrate the tissue. Same things happen to your feet. So short-term, they can have a use case, but they are not a long-term thing. And if you've been prescribed an orthotic without an egress, meaning a way to get out of it, that means that you've been given a life sentence. The way you get out of that is very simple. You start to move your toes and you engage in very simple exercises rolling your feet, moving the toes, doing some manual work, like putting your hands between your, your fingers, between your toes to get circulation there and build up. But as you said earlier, it requires a stripping away of the ego so that you are starting to you know, not judge yourself. Say, oh, this is so stupid. I have to do this. It's like, no, I'm going to build up the thing I would have gotten as a child and start to build up little by little by little to get out of this thing. Does, it, does that make sense to answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. The, what you were saying there about rolling out your feet and stuff, People will think like, oh, you know, I need to be in a gym setting, this, that, the other. When actually you can literally get a lacrosse ball, a cricket ball, what have you, something that's slightly hard or even, I don't know, like just something something that's hard but misshaped to the floor. Just stand on it at home as you're cooking. Just maybe stand on it in different positions on your foot and manipulate it so that you find the sensation maybe just under the arch of your foot and you're like, oh, maybe I'll just spend a minute or two here. And it's the thing of like, you know, you're saying – maybe put your fingers in between your toes, toes and hold that and manipulate them. If you can't get between all mm -hmm. toes, go between two. And then once that becomes comfortable, do three and four and so on. And I think a problem as well with feet that's coming to fruition now is the carbon fiber plated shoes, which are meant for elite, well, not just elite, but marathon runners. Competitive or, athletes. You know, 5K runners. Yeah, the... People, I see all the time now, people are wearing them just to go shopping. But a carbon fiber plate, when you're not using it for performance, is basically mm -hmm. like wearing a cast for your foot. There's no movement in them whatsoever. I've got a pair for running. There's absolutely no mm -hmm. movement in them whatsoever. But people aren't aware of it. They don't have an understanding of that this, this thing is literally meant for performance and performance only, not for you to be wearing mm -hmm. down to the shop. So that brings up the shoes. And... So I think there's three categories of shoes. There's the competitive shoe, the aesthetic shoe, and the training shoe, or like the everyday shoe. A competitive shoe, you're sacrificing one aspect of a healthy shoe, which there are four. There's flat, meaning the heel and toe are on the same level. They're wide in the toe box, meaning your toes can wiggle. They're flexible, meaning you can bend and roll them up without much strain. And they're thin. That's the least important because it's okay to have some padding, but uh, they're thin enough for you to feel the ground is ideal. Uh, so those four, if you sacrifice one or more of those for a specific competitive advantage, that's a competition shoe. So for example, the carbon fiber plate sacrifices the flexible aspect. 
that means that when you step, you have more, it, it works with you to resist the bend and it kind of shoots you forward like a little bit of a blade. Now, that's fine if you're training for competition because their competition and health are not synonymous. They're not the same thing. And so if you are trying to push yourself past the point of what is healthy, then yeah, that's okay. But that is not an everyday thing. And so the point is understanding that if I make trade-offs, then I need to go and have a conversation with my body and I do some of this work after, which is the value of soft tissue work and taking care of yourself, which could be done in a at home and kind of an everyday thing. It's like a mobility part. Then if you look at the other parts, a training everyday shoe is really going to be an aesthetic shoe just looks a certain way and it almost always sacrifices multiple things just to look. But you can make the argument that looking good is competition in some aspects. If you're going on a date or whatever, then sure. Like I'm not going to sit there and say, you know, what's right or wrong, but I will say that a healthy foot is able to wear a shoe like that and bounce back quickly. It's just a question of do you really want to be wearing a specific type of shoe, raised heel shoe that's stiff to work every single day. Like mm, it's a better way to do that. This is where you go and you look at a, a shoe should be built for the foot, not the other way around. But most often we're told that, oh, this is the way a shoe should look. Now fit your foot into it. That's a problem. So what you want to think about is if I'm looking at a shoe, it allows my foot to be a foot. You want something that's going to be flat, wide, flexible, and thin. That's going to be the baseline of, okay, it, you know, we go into a conversation about what shoe should I wear? It's like, well, is it comfortable? Mm not really the question you want to ask first. Like, does it let your foot move? Like, does, does my foot have the capacity to move is the more valuable thing. Can I, does this thing impede function? And so like, if it go functional within that, you should have to figure these things out. But I think we've got a limited perspective on comfort because it's like, well, you know, what does it feel like? We just think really why that is, is it long enough? We don't think is a shoe wide enough. Cause you go like, you look this way, you look at the incentives that will drive people to lose options without realizing it. I'll say, you know, if I am a shoe company and I have to make a, a skew, I have a certain amount of, I have to make a few thousand pairs of shoes. Can I really afford? And, you know, it's enough to have a last and measures for, you know, in America, the size 10, 10 and a half, 11, 11 and a half. So it's over sizes and half sizes, but you don't ever see, it's just not common to see a width, even though people are different with shoes and men have wider proportional shoes, feet than women, for example, but you don't see like narrow, wide and narrow, normal and wide, like that would be great, but you don't see that. So you just see one skew because it costs money to have a size 11 shoe and three different, you know, now you think, okay, I've got 30 different size or 20 different sizes of shoes. And each of them has a different width. That's 60 different skews I have to create in different colors. It's just not profitable. And so they like, well, you know, we'll just kind of pick some in the middle. And then if you have a wide shoe or like it happens to be so that when you have a raised heel, it slides your foot forward and the narrow toe box coming together keeps your foot from coming out even though that means you're coming to a point and for whatever reason there's an aesthetic appeal to the pointed toe that looks people like elf shoes i guess but like there's an aesthetic appeal that people choose that so you start to see this conversation where people are making decisions based off a very limited constraint of comfort because they don't realize that like okay well the height of my shoe matters the height of my foot meaning like how high it is like i have a really fat foot so like it's too high for most shoes um, the arch, so to speak, and then you look at the width. If you have a strong foot, like your foot will change shape just like your hands. If you do grip work, you do running, you do start to do the strength work for your feet. So then, of course, you know, to get people, you get people wearing shoes that don't fit them, they don't serve them. Their feet get stiff, tight, and weak. And then you go to the doctor, and what does the doctor say? Well, we're going to send you a specialist. And that specialist is a podiatrist who literally is gone to school in an education system that's funded by the very companies that sell orthotics. So the first I have podiatrists reach out to me, and the first line of the first line of um, what do you call it uh, suggestion, uh, the first line of like fixing things out is get you an orthotic first, then we'll figure out the next uh, rest of it later. And yeah, you know, most people like that's kind of like saying, all right, we got a problem, we got a fever, here's some ibuprofen, you come back, and we'll figure out the next part when you feel a little bit better. They go, oh, I feel better, I don't want to take anymore. It's like you know, you start to just see that. So there's, there's, it's not just a one-sided thing, but there's a set of incentives on both sides and there's an underlying lack of, you know, the more you respond, well, just to tie this back into the pain conversation, the more you train people that pain is bad and they don't see it as a doorway and inroad to becoming better and becoming more of themselves in a sense, like developing, then they just say, the, the quicker I got rid of the bad thing, I did, I, that's good, right? I got rid of the bad thing and they just shut it down. And so you get incentives to sell and to get people into certain things and to you know, push a certain narrative. And then people buy that and think, all right, I got the pain, I'm doing good. And this is, it's just hope it doesn't come back. And hope is not a strategy. 
Thank you to Graham for his time. Obviously, part two will be coming out um, a week on Monday, so at 6 a.m. British time and then 5 p.m. Australian Eastern time. Please make sure to share the podcast with anyone who may be interested as I can't expand and um, grow the podcast without your help. So please make sure to do that. And I appreciate each and every one of you who watch the videos and listen to them and watch the clips and all that sort of stuff. So thank you so much. And I will see you next week for another video.